Uh, we're in a series at the moment in John chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible with you, you might like to turn to that passage, John chapter 10. And we're thinking about Jesus' words about life in all of its fullness. I was reading uh, this week uh, a report from the Wycliffe Association, who are a, a group of Bible translators. And they were explaining that in Africa, there's something like 75 different languages and, and dialects. But only about seven of those are recognized as official languages. So there are seven sort of translations uh, in Africa. Uh, but as you can imagine, the, the rest of them, what's 75 minus seven? 68, thank you. Uh, the 68 people groups are still waiting for the language, uh, the Bible in their own language. It was translated uh, just this last week uh, into Zambian for the first time. And as the Bible was being read in their language, they were crying. And then when the reading was finished, they were dancing. And sometimes we don't know what we've got, do we? So if you feel like dancing after the reading this morning, please feel free. Plenty of space in the aisles. Uh, but John chapter 10, what a gift that we get to hear this. Jesus' words in our language. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for them, and the sheep listen for his voice. He calls his own sheep out by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run from them because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full and the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep so when he sees the wolf coming he abandons the sheep and runs away the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it the man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep i am the good shepherd i know my sheep and my sheep know me just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. 
Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start with two stories this morning about two different people. Uh, Anyone remember years and years ago when um, Sky One was first screened in the UK? Yeah, some people do. Yeah, it was a big day in our household. And one of the shows that was shown uh, on there was The Late Show with David Letterman. Now, it wasn't shown at the same time. It was shown, I think, the day or a couple of days after an edited version of it. Uh, And at the time, David Letterman was like the peak of the entertainment world. Anyone remember those days? It might have been a short period of time then, perhaps. Um, but now he's got a show on Amazon, uh, and he's a much older man now. And what's interesting is that the ego is gone, and he's not interviewing people for promoting a book or for entertainment's sake, but he's asking the kind of questions that he's really interested in. Uh, and one person that he had on was Will Smith. Now, this was before what happened at the Oscars. So it was a fascinating thing to watch, seeing as we know what happened at the Oscars. Uh, but he's interviewing Will Smith. And Will Smith starts to open up about his childhood. Uh, he says that when he was young, his dad used to say to him that 99% is as good as 0%. And that he found himself saying this to his own kids when they were growing up. 99% is as good as 0%. He was just this driven character, so much so that he was addicted to success. There was one time when a film came out, uh, I Am Legend. How many people saw I Am Legend? You can admit it. It's okay if you've seen it. Uh, at the time, it was the highest grossing movie of all time uh, for an opening weekend in, in December. $77 million for the opening weekend. So his manager rings him up and says, you're not going to believe this. I think this was the day before Christmas Eve. 77 million. And Will Smith thinks about it and goes, how do you think we would have got 80 million? And I think he says that his manager just hung up the phone uh, at that point. It's sad, isn't it, when you see people who are addicted to this endless and undisciplined and unfocused need for more. If your definition of what success is is more, you'll never be satisfied because there's always more you could have and there'll always be somebody who's better or richer or faster or funnier or more attractive than it. It was so sad to see him talking in that way. Somebody that from the outside looks like a very successful, very happy kind of person. You know, he's, he's not the only person to fall for this, is he? This lure, this temptation. There was a survey that was done uh, by a a group called Census in the UK in February last year. They uh, surveyed over 2,000 people. And they were after this question of security. How how secure do you feel uh, in your life? So one of the statements, they asked people to sort of agree or disagree with this one. I am generally liked by others. I see some of you already thinking, oh, wow, that's that's a big statement to think about. Because it's important to us, isn't it? We've all got a spectrum, I guess, with this. We're all slightly different personalities, but generally, we want to be liked. Of the results that came back for women, only 42% agreed that they were generally liked by other people. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Going through life, having to wonder, do people like me? Do Do I fit in here? For men, it was slightly higher, uh, 45% 
said they were generally like, but that's still a majority. It's over half the population of men and women. I, I don't know if I'm generally liked or not. Then this question, I feel attractive to others. I'm not going to ask you this morning to, to, to rate yourselves, but that was the question they asked. For women, only 15% of women said that they felt attractive to others. And for men, it was about 21%. And I'm not going to argue who's more deluded uh, in, in that survey. What's really sad is that the older you get, these numbers drop. 45, the numbers were more like 12. Up into the 70s, 80s, it was less than 10% of people. Then this one. So if you kind of rule out your attractiveness or your likability to others, what about something more significant then? What about this question? Uh, I am confident in my ability to do my job well. Some of you are already thinking, this is not going to score high either. For women, it was 32%. That means that there's nearly two-thirds of people, women working, who don't have any confidence that they can do their job well. 42% of men feeling the same. So that, again, that's over half of men. I, I don't know if I've got an ability to do my job well. See, whoever you are and wherever you are in life and however much fame or money or success you can accrue, no matter what kind of car you drive or house you live in or clothes you wear, these voices are there, aren't they? Are you enough? Is what you've got enough? And it gets worse, doesn't it, when we start to compare what we've got with others. Strange, isn't it, that the phone that we have, our mobile phone, is fine until we see the new model, a slightly wider screen, slightly faster, and then ours looks antique. Strange, isn't it, how when we begin to compare, we feel less secure. That's one story. I'd love to share with you part of somebody else's story. If I say the name Brother Andrew, do people know the name? Yeah, well, I'm punching the air from upstairs. Brother Andrew was an incredible missionary who God used very powerfully to smuggle Bibles into parts in the world where that was illegal. On one occasion, he managed to smuggle a million Bibles into China. I mean, you can imagine the sense of danger and threat that existed over that. He went on to found Open Doors, uh, which have now delivered countless Bibles to countless places all around the world. He's not a wealthy man. He's, he's written a few books. But he's known, if you've ever spent time with him, sadly he passed away this, this last week, but known as somebody with deep joy, deep peace. People have said that when they've sat and spoken with him, sometimes the phone has started ringing, and he didn't even look tempted to answer the phone. He was just there in the moment, of a man of, of peace, a man of presence, a man of joy, but a man who dedicated his life to smuggling Bibles into some of the most dangerous places on the planet. On one occasion, he, he was asked about this and how he could put himself and his children uh, and his uh, organizational workers, how he could put them at risk. And he said this, of course it's dangerous, but it's even more dangerous for us all if we do not do it. 
Safety is not the issue when we look at the Great Commission. The purpose of the church cannot be to survive or even thrive, but to serve. Could almost just leave it there, couldn't we, today? And so how do you get somebody who's dedicated their life to this impossible, dangerous mission on some countries' wanted lists, a man of peace and joy, and another man with more money than we could ever dream of, who'd probably pay off the national debt of some countries desperately driven by a need for more and for success and for fame. See, when we come to this question of life and life in all of its fullness, you have to come to the question, but what does life mean? And what does a full life look like? What is Jesus after? What is, he, what is he pointing us towards? What is he come to give us? What is this full life uh, that he wants to give us? This verse that we're going to be camping in for a few weeks' time, he contrasts himself with our enemy, the devil, who he calls here the thief, which is such an apt title for the enemy. The thief comes, now note this word, only to steal, kill, and destroy. It's so important here that we get this, the word only. It's not like that the devil can tolerate a little bit of happiness and, and peace. He's only come, no matter how he dresses it up, and he's a master of disguise. The reality is, if the Lord came to us and showed us the origin of our sin, our temptation, and where it would lead us, none of us would go near it. So the enemy dresses it up. Pretends it's, it's something else entirely, but his purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And make no mistake about it, the battle is on. We can pretend it's not, we can be ignorant of it, but the battle is on. The enemy is after your security. He's after your peace. He's after your joy, and if he can steal it or taint it or question it or confuse it, he will. That is his, that's all he does, only steal, kill, and destroy. And then Jesus flips it over, and some of the most fantastic words. But I have come that they might have life, life with a capital L, life in widescreen, full color, life in all of its abundance, its flavor, its joy, its peace, its hope, its love. And if you didn't get it, he kind of underlines it and have it to the full. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what he wants for us. That's what he wants for every single person on the planet. For those lost in the success game, and for those still waiting for a Bible in their own language, Jesus is crying over this world, I want you to have life, real life, true life, life as it was meant to be lived, the life you were designed for, life in the presence of God, life knowing that you are loved and held. Just before that, he says this, one of the great I am sayings of, of John's gospel. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. 
I want to rest on these words for, for just a moment. We were thinking, weren't we, two weeks ago when we started this series, how Jesus uses this imagery of a sheep pen. And now, Middle Eastern shepherds build sheep pens anytime they lead the flock to a new place, to a place of pasture, which we'll come on to in a moment. And they would build a, a, a stone wall, uh, a couple of feet high for the sheep to dwell in, and then at night time would lie over the entrance to the sheep pen. So when Jesus says he's the gate, he's using an image that they would recognize. When he says he would lay down his life for the sheep, that's because if anything came at night to attack the sheep, the only way into the sheep was through the shepherd. I am the gate, Jesus says. Not only am I the authentic access to all that God has for you, but I am the protection. I'm the guard. I'm the guide of your life. I am the gate. Jesus went on later to say, I lay down my life for the sheep. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this imagery. There are plenty of shepherds, I'm sure, who would be willing to risk their life for the sheep. In this passage that we just read, Jesus tells us there's some who are just hired to do a job, and when a real threat comes, they're off. <laughs> They've got it's not my sheep. But some shepherds might risk their lives. How many shepherds in history do you think have ever given their lives for a flock of sheep? It's got, it's got to be a small number, right? And Jesus, the Word made flesh, the I am, says, I lay down my life for the sheep. If you enter through me, through my sacrifice, through my love, uh, through the way that I have made in laying down my life, you will be saved. The only way into the sheepfold, the sheepfold is through this grace, is through this sacrifice. I was thinking about this this week. It, it's amazing, isn't it, how many of us want to come to Jesus through grace and then can slip back sometimes to living another way, to living by law. Because all of those voices are still there, aren't they? Am I enough? Am I good enough? Have I done enough? And so we start to add all these things in, don't we? If I'm going to be loved by God, if I'm going to be known by Him, if I'm going to be useful to Him, I've, I've got to tag these extra things on. But Jesus is really clear. The, the only way in is through Him, is to rest in that place of love. Those who enter through me, He says, will be saved. Now, the word saved in the original language is the word sozo. It can also be translated as, as healed or rescued. But the sense of it is that this is an ongoing thing. So when Jesus talks here about being saved, he's, he's not just talking about when you come to him. He's talking about being kept safe. Those who come to me will be kept safe. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, years ago when I heard this passage, I'll be honest, that confused me a little bit. Because I thought, well, if you've come into the sheep pen, why do you, why do you want to go out? You know, maybe some people walk away and then come back for a little bit. And what does that mean? Are we just Christian for a while and then, you know, not Christian when it's convenient? Uh, and then, so I was looking up what this thing means about going in and, and coming out. And I'm told that it was a, a, a saying, an idiom was used at the time that kind of describes life. So we might talk about living and breathing. Or for some of us, 
wheeling and dealing, looking at nobody in particular. But we have these phrases, don't we, that kind of summarize. This phrase, coming in and going out, was a way that Jews spoke about their whole lives, coming and, and going. We read one earlier in Psalm 121. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore, whether you're at home or at work or away, wherever you are. And I suddenly realized that this pasture that Jesus offers us is not this sort of holy huddle that we run into. It's not a, a space where we escape from life. But in the coming and in the going, there is pasture. A word that literally means a feeding place. In a Hebrew context, it was a technical word. When we hear the word pasture, we probably just think of fields, but not all fields are good for pasture. Some don't have enough grass, some don't have enough good quality grass, some aren't big enough, some aren't near enough um, streams of water, etc. Some are too exposed. But those places that are just right are pasture. And a shepherd's job was to keep an eye out for the next pasture to go to when they'd kind of depleted the one that they were in. You know, Jesus knows what you need. And he will lead you somewhere for a season. And then we have to be ready when the voice calls us to follow. Because what fed you in one season will not feed you in another season. The tools that you'll need to build in one season will be different than the tools that you need in another season. The fruit that you bear in one season will be different to the fruit that you bear in another. The, the battle, the principles that we rely on for the battles that we face will be different in one season to another. And the key thing in all of that, because that could be very confusing and alienating, is just the voice of the shepherd. Jesus, where are you leading me? Coming in, going out, finding pasture. It's not a part of my life. It's not a place that I escape to. It's this journey. It's this progress. It's this person that calls me into him. It's a wonderful promise today that if we're following the shepherd, there's feeding, there's nurture, there's safety. Now, we can, if we want to, wander off. We can drift away, and we've all been there. And I think we can all recognize the reality that a lone sheep looks really tempted to the wolf. That's why we need each other. Why we need to stay together, why we need to learn and grow and feed together. There's an incredible book, um, there's a series of books actually, but one in particular that's really spoken to me uh, by a guy who was a shepherd. Uh, had this huge ranch and had loads of under shepherds under him, a, a guy called Philip Keller. And if you do nothing else in response to this message but go and buy this book, it will bless your socks off. Uh, but because he was a shepherd, when he looks, at Psalm 23, for example, he, he sees this unique picture. He understands it uh, at a level that most of us would miss. And he, he talks about this thing about being made to lie down in green pastures. The shepherd having to lead the, 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 the sheep to a new place. And he writes this, that contentment should be the hallmark of the man or woman who's put his or her affairs in the hands of God contentment. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not lack. There is a provision for me. And I can choose to live within that provision, or I can exceed that provision, but the calling is to learn deep contentment 
the hallmark of anyone who put their affairs in the hands of God because they belong to Christ and have recognized him as Lord and master of their lives, their owner and manager. They are permeated by this deep, quiet, settled peace that is beautiful to behold. Deep, quiet, settled peace. Yes, please. But it is beautiful, isn't it, when you, when you see it? I came across this week a story about uh, a professor in America, a guy called uh, Dr. Gil Miller. And he got a PhD in astrophysics, so not a slow person, quite clever person. He then went to work for NASA and spent 30 years of his life in aerospace design. So if anybody is going to discover warp speed and real, build the real Star Trek enterprise, it's this guy. Uh, absolutely brilliant guy. Uh, he stepped down from the position that he had uh, to take a lesser position for a while because his mum had a very serious genetic disease. It meant that parts of her body started to go numb, and then uh, pain would come that required very, very painful, uh, very, very strong painkillers. Uh, but this would spread and eventually claim her life. And so he decides eventually to step down from work to care for his mum, uh, who died at the age of, of 98. And then one day he's on the beach walking with his family, and he suddenly realizes he can't feel the, the sand underneath his feet. And he thinks, oh, I, I really hope it's not the same condition my mum had. And of course, he'd seen this firsthand. So he goes to the doctor who says, well, it might be a bit early to tell, but come back if it gets worse. And it got worse, so he went back again, and the doctor struck a tuning fork and put it on his foot. He says, can you feel the vibrations? And he just started to cry. And the doctor knew he can't feel, can't feel it. And so he begins to think about his life in a new way. Of course, he knew what had happened to his mum. He knew what it meant for her, and he knew a little bit about what it was going to mean for him. He was also a musician. He loved to play in the worship, I say the worship group uh, in church. He played the double bass, and their orchestra used to like to play Handel's Messiah on the streets for Christmas. you fancy that? We'll give it a go. We'll give it a go. Uh, eventually, the pain becomes so much that he can't even play a bass, the double bass in, in church. He turned his mind to writing. He's written some fantastic stuff. One amazing essay about the Big Bang Theory and, and the science behind that and how faith and science fit together. He wrote another amazing book called The Emmaus Road, which was about finding Jesus in, in the Old Testament. And then comes to the realization, the reality, that although he's got all these ideas, loads of passion, a series he wanted to create, he's not going to be able to write anything. And suddenly he says, my world became very small. There's stuff I thought I'd be doing with my life that I realized I couldn't. Then there were ways I thought I could serve the church. And then I discovered I couldn't do that. So then there was a new passion, a new gift, a new vision to write. And then I discovered I, I couldn't do that. And he took more and more stronger painkillers to, to deal with this. A few weeks ago, he was being interviewed for someone's blog, and they were writing about, how do you hold on to your peace when everything is systematically 
and slowly stripped away from you. What does it mean to say the Lord is my shepherd when this is the pasture that you find yourself in? And he wrote, writes and says, no, you don't understand. I had to come to a place when I, I could do nothing to realize that there is nothing that can separate me from God's love. That God loves me for me. And when I've written all the science books I can write, when I've written all the theology I can write, when I've played all the instruments I can play, and when all of that is done, there is still a place that I can rest in. I've often thought that there's this peace that comes sometimes in life. I'm, I'm by nature an optimist. If you ask the people that live with me, they'll tell you it's annoying. My instinct to say, they'll be fine. It's annoying. I know myself. And we can go through life doing that, can't we? It's fine. It'll be fine. It's okay. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. And never face the darkness. And there's another piece that comes when you have been through the darkness and there is nothing left but God's love. And to then say, it's okay, is a different kind of peace. I don't know who this is for, but there's a temptation, I think, sometimes in Christian circles when we go through struggle or um, suffering, there's a temptation to try and tidy up the story a little bit, to try and work out what God was doing and tell other people this great story that, yes, it was disappointing, but this. You probably recognize some of us here, that temptation. I don't know sometimes if somebody like Dr. Gil Miller would say to us, don't do that too early, because you might have more to, you might have further to go yet. But even when you can do nothing, perhaps it is only then that you see it, nothing can separate you. What's it that Paul wrote to the church? There is nothing in all creation he makes this long list. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Has the ability, has the capacity, has the power to separate you from God's love. And when we rest in that, when everything else is stripped away, deep, seated, quiet, peace. I'd love to end uh, with the words uh, that um, Brother Andrew uh, once wrote. He was known as a person of deep peace and deep joy, but it wasn't always that way. Uh, as a young man, uh, he writes this. This is in a book called uh, God's Smuggler, which is the other book that you should all go out and buy now and uh, read. Sorry to give you homework this morning. But he says, talks about a time he, when he was in hospital. He says, the hospital to which I'd been assigned was run by Franciscan sisters. I soon fell in love with every one of them. From dawn until midnight, they were busy in the wards, cleaning bedpans, swabbing wounds, writing letters for us, laughing, singing. I never once heard them complain. 
One day I asked the nun who came to bathe me how it was that she and the other sisters were always so cheerful. Why, Andrew, you ought to know the answer to that, a good Dutch boy like you. It's the love of Christ. When she said it, her eyes sparkled. And I knew without question that for her, this was the whole answer. She could have talked all afternoon and said no more. But you are teasing me, aren't you, she said, tapping the well-worn little Bible where it still lay on the bedside table. You've got the answer right here. And maybe God just wants to come to us today and remind us the answer's right here. In Jesus, we have everything we need. Let's take a moment to pray together today. And what I'd love you to do is just to turn something of what the Lord maybe has, has said to you today, just turn that into a prayer. Maybe you've been aware that the enemy has been after your peace, or your security, or your joy, or your hope. And you just need to seek the voice of the shepherd. Maybe there was a time when you knew exactly where he was and where he was leading you, but that voice perhaps is a bit faded, a bit quieter these days. But nothing can separate you from his love. He's a good shepherd who waits. The gate for the sheep is not closed. Maybe for others, there's a, a temptation that has gripped us. Maybe something that didn't start as unhealthy, but something that has got a grip. Or maybe it was something that felt awful the first time, but got easier over time. And today, the shepherd just wants to guide you out, lead you through, forgive you, cleanse you, welcome you. Just tell him, just talk to him about it. Because there is nothing that can separate you from his love. Maybe for others here today, there's a question that you've come up against that you haven't got an answer to. Something that's being asked of you. The shepherd just wants to lead you to a feeding place, to a new place, to a new season. Which might mean leaving the familiar, might mean leaving the comfortable. But in Jesus we have everything we need. 
and there is nothing that can separate you from his love. And maybe for others, there's a sense of a threat looming. Something that we're not looking forward to this week. Something that we're dreading hearing or seeing. Some of that might be real and some of that might be imagined, but the sense of dread can be very real. But in the presence of the shepherd, even death is just a shadow. And there is nothing that can separate you from his love. So, Lord Jesus, today we just want to welcome your presence. In the coming and the going, would you lead us, Lord, into your pasture? Which might look very different to how we'd want to be led or the place we want to go, but is nevertheless the place that we need to be.